how you allocate resources is one of the, the clearest manifestations of your strategic choices. And so if you're not getting this right, you can make a bunch of targets and, and say a bunch of things about where you're going as a business, but this is actually the mechanism that's going to create the conditions by which you actually do it. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Matt Stone, a partner in our London office, who's here today to talk about ways companies can embed ESG, or environmental, social, and governance priorities, into resource allocation. Matt's an expert on sustainability and ESG issues, and his work focuses on helping companies navigate the energy transition. He's joined today by Fabian Appel, an associate partner who's also based in London. Matt, let's start with you. Have you seen an evolution in how companies are linking their public ESG commitments to their resource prioritization? Yeah, so Sean, I think the evolution of ESG has been one of initially thinking about reporting, metrics, getting some transparency on what do we mean to the rest of society? What's our impact on the environment, society, and so on? And increasingly, what's being asked of companies is how is that then driving decision-making within the business? How is it changing what you do? So it's actually going from kind of words on a page to like facts on the ground. And so resource allocation is one of the most strategic and important decisions that you have as a CEO, as a CFO, and so on. And if you're not thinking about the ESG impacts of your investments, then you're not actually going to you know, materially change your ESG performance over time. We need to actually get to the point where we embed this into the decision-making frameworks of the company so that when we go out and report our ESG performance, we can actually say, look, we improved because we made these choices that we otherwise may not have made. Got it. Thank you. And where do you typically first see resource reallocation get linked to ESG? Is it with talent or capital expenditure or perhaps in new product development? To be very clear, I mean, E, S, and G are obviously very different from each other. And obviously, E is the one where a lot of us spend a lot of time. And when I say E, I mean climate in particular. Of course, there's many other E issues on top of that. And so the sectors in which climate has been the front and center strategic choice, oil and gas, mining, steel, cement, other hard-to-abate sectors, uh, even automotive, given the, the electrification of drivetrains and so on, those are capital-intensive industries and so one of the most important resource allocation choice you have is around CapEx, it's around capital. So am I going to be moving uh, a significant chunk of my CapEx from, let's say, legacy fossil fuel-based assets into new, green, clean sources of energy? So these are really big decisions around uh, capital. And so that's where I think you've seen the most innovation, the most thinking today on embedding ESG resource allocation is on the CapEx side, but also, frankly, on the carbon and the E side. Thank you. And what other kinds of resources are we typically talking about here? Are, are companies going beyond capital investments? Actually, when we, when we started talking about this, we talked a lot about capital. And that's probably because initially ESG was particularly a topic for, you know, mining companies, very heavy energy companies, the, the, the companies that maybe some people thought of as having ESG problems. Now, of course, ESG is a topic for sort of all sorts of companies and the way that they make contributions differs. And, and for some companies, it's more on the environmental side. For other companies, it's more on the social side. And we think now that actually it's much better to think about capital, but also about the resources that maybe are more important if you're in a less capital intensive industry like talent, broader OPEX, right? How do you empower your people and, and your capital to be productive? So it's really 
capital, talent, and broader OPEX that we think you should think about. Thank you. And, and what type of measures or approaches are companies applying to these decisions? Fabian, can you share a couple of practical examples? So I think the, the best practical example to think through this is actually to think about carbon, where there's a good number, and then how you might trade that off or think about that in the context of other ESG goals that you might have. So on carbon, we've actually seen folks think about three different ways of dealing with carbon, right? One is they actually set a hard boundary and they say, we are going to have a carbon footprint over the next five, 10 years that does not exceed X for scopes one, one and two. And then you actually manage your portfolio of activities against that, right? And you just don't let that exceed that carbon target. And for that, you need to actually measure all the things you do, right? Otherwise you don't know if you're gonna go outside it. You can of course also have, have sort of soft boundaries. And that's typically how people think about some of the social metrics, some of the other environmental metrics, where you say, we know some of our projects or some of our activities will not reach our waste reduction goals, or they may not reach our community empowerment goals. And that's okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do more or less a binary scoring of a project or of a business plan and say, does it meet what we've described? So if we said we wanted to reduce the amount of waste we produce or, or what, what, whatever it may be, right? Like, does that pro project actually help towards that goal, right? So do we have um, you know, X amount of, of waste reduction per ton of product, for, for example, in, in a kind of materials context? And then you score them and you see across the board, how many of those things do they hit? How many do they not hit? And therefore, do you get to a balance that you, that you kind of feel comfortable about? So that's softer and it's a bit more qualitative. And then finally, I think people think about the valuing or putting a cost on stuff and then allowing to an extent, the free market of their internal resource allocation to do the work. And we've seen lots of those examples with carbon where people have internal carbon prices, which can be quite hard prices. Companies just say, well, we're gonna put an internal carbon price on you. We're gonna show you an NPV or your IRR without the carbon price and with the carbon price. Just so you know that if there were a price on carbon, here's how much worse your IRR would be. And then they still make resourcing allocations and basically more carbon intensive projects just end up being less good return in virtue of that carbon price, or at least end up having a less good shadow return and you kind of have that conversation. And I mean, it's not, you know, it, it's been over a decade now since the first company started introducing like shadow carbon prices as a sensitivity in their investment committee. So that's been like a common practice. But what's increasingly happening now is actually internal carbon taxes, collecting funds uh, from different business units to create a real edge to whether or not you make certain investments and so on. You also, though, do see, for example, in very talent-oriented industries, so professional services, banking, insurance, a lot of the financial services, and beyond. Increasingly, the thought around, you know, how do you allocate talent to different uh, businesses, and what would that mean in terms of impact on the ESG performance of the business as well, right? So I think increasingly, this, this concept is moving just out of the CapEx space and into other forms of, of resource allocation as well. Thank you both. Uh, Matt, can you tell us a little bit more about the S or the societal aspect of ESG and how do those social issues get reflected in companies' investment priorities? So let's just talk about the, the capital allocation choices first. So if you have a new project or you're expanding an existing project, right, so you're allocating capital uh, somewhere, you do have to still think about all the S implications of that. So for example, depending on the, the project profile and so on, what does it mean in terms of local sourcing? What does it mean in terms of local employment? What does it mean in terms of workforce composition and how it might impact our diversity 
and inclusion goals. So increasingly, you see companies not just check an investment purely on the basis of the financial return, the IRR, the NPV, what have you, but also increasingly on you know, things like some of these S metrics that I've mentioned around um, what does it mean for whatever targets we've set on local employment or diversity inclusion as well. Similarly, though, if you are making big moves, strategic moves as a company into different business areas, you also want to make sure that you understand what the implications would be for some of your uh, S and G, frankly, targets that you've set as well. So this allocation choice is not something that should just be governed by financial considerations anymore. It will also have impacts across the many different dimensions of ESG, not just E, of course. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm sure there are many different practices for embedding ESG priorities into allocation decisions. Um, in your work with clients, are there some that you sort of typically go to first or that are particularly important? Yeah, I think one is being very clear on the metrics that you're going to use. And this is not an easy thing because ESG can be a thousand different things. And then on top of that, each of those thousand different things can be measured a thousand different ways. We've got reporting standards and frameworks and increasing amounts of regulation, the, the EU taxonomy, the SEC is now talking about various reporting requirements. So the metrics are being somewhat sorted out through this alphabet soup of different reporting standards and frameworks. But as a company, of course, you need to think about which of those metrics, I may have to report against many of them, but which of those metrics really has the essence of my ESG performance? And so which of those metrics should we be talking about? in the kind of investment committee processes or other resource allocation processes. So one is defining the metrics. I think it's very important to be extremely precise and prioritized around two to three core metrics that really, really you think are going to move the needle, but also having enough visibility on the impact of your resource allocation choices across more metrics. Right? And so one of the things that we, we talk about a lot with clients is what are the hard boundary conditions that you want to make sure that you never go past? And then what are the soft boundary conditions, the things where on some metrics you might be okay with something being a little bit better or worse from an ESG standpoint, but on the hard boundary conditions, say absolutely not. We need to make sure that we are you know, decarbonizing on this pathway or that we are ensuring that we reach certain targets from a talent and workforce standpoint and so on. And this is really where I think companies often struggle, often fall short of really doing the embedding properly, right? So do they have a clear articulation of what it means to make progress on community engagement or, or, or kind of economic empowerment? Do they know how they know whether a particular investment is going to help them improve their performance on water use? Those sorts of things are not typically understood to the same level of rigor and detail as they are for financial performance. And we think that ESG leaders actually spell out very clear metrics and look at them in the, in the resource allocation process. But also, I think the ones that are probably most important from a value creation perspective are really around carbon. So do you have, for every investment project that you, that you make, for every change to your ongoing business plans, an understanding how does it impact your scopes one and two carbon? How does it impact potentially even your scope three carbon if you're in an industry where you're really needing to think about your upstream and downstream emissions? And how, once you look across all the choices you're making for the year, how does your overall kind of carbon footprint as a, as a company, as an organization, come together in light of that? And we're seeing people have very differentially sophisticated ways of thinking about this, right? Some people are really getting very rigorous and they can look at their portfolio of carbon impact in a very similar way to their portfolio of ROI, net present value of investment choices, of kind of reshuffling of their talent. 
and other organizations you know, are really only starting maybe are implementing a, a kind of shadow carbon price and some people talk about it when they're having an investment committee meeting, but they're not necessarily doing it at all at a similarly robust level to their financial discussions. Understood. How should companies approach making the trade-offs that resource allocation inevitably requires, especially in terms of these ESG themes? Let's say your metrics are all about carbon footprint. Now imagine you have an amazing 30% IRR investment opportunity, but it's going to take your carbon footprint up by 15% and take you way over uh, what you needed to be at in order to, to kind of decarbonize on a certain trajectory. Are you willing to walk away from a 30% IRR investment opportunity? And this is something that our clients are grappling with. And so you need to have clarity on what trade-offs am I willing to make? And by the way, I have to then explain that to my shareholders and my other stakeholders, how I'm going to adjudicate those decisions. And so this is really, this for me is, is, the, is the, where the rubber hits the road. This is the essence of embedding ESG and resource allocation is those trade-off mechanisms, those decision-making uh, mechanisms that need to be sorted out ahead of time. Because otherwise, if it's done on an ad hoc, project-by-project basis, you'll be quite inconsistent across them. So these sound like pretty tough trade-offs. In your experience, who typically makes these decisions about which metrics to prioritize for resource decisions and how? Is it typically the CFO? Obviously, if we talk about allocating financial resources, CapEx and OpEx, that sits at the CFO at the end of the day. And if we talk about ESG performance, there's usually someone like a chief sustainability officer who is accountable for the ESG performance of the business. So it has to be an alliance really between those two individuals, between the CFO, the chief sustainability officer, or their equivalent, to define, okay, how do we want to start thinking about and reflecting on ESG consequences of certain capital and OPEX allocation choices going forward. I mean, what's interesting is that the businesses that have taken this most seriously tend to be in kind of asset-heavy, capital-intensive industries like energy, natural resources, and so on. So obviously, you have to define the metrics and, and think through the, the decision-making trade-off mechanisms that, uh, that we discussed earlier. But actually, it's also about what is the secretariat or the preparatory body that prepares the proposals that go to the investment committee, what are they asking the project teams for? Because historically, what they're asking the project teams for is technical details on the project, the financials, the, and then you know some kind of risk register, which of course may have some kind of ESG risks as well. But increasingly, what they're asking is actually tell me what the ESG performance of this asset will be. Actually measure for me what the carbon intensity of this asset will be, what the water use of this asset will be, how much wastewater will it produce? What will it mean in terms of workforce composition, local employment, and so on? So you're getting kind of this ask now for ESG data to be forecasted for these assets. And so then that data, that kind of information, those investment memoranda now go into the investment committee. And there are some organizations where if the investment doesn't quite meet the bar on some ESG performance, are then sent back to the business and say, go scrub this for carbon output, go scrub this for you know, too much water use. And so it's that embedding it in the actual templates and the actual ask of the business that starts to drive a, a, cha- a shift in mindsets deeper in the organization. Interesting. So what would you say are some of the stumbling blocks that organizations might encounter in trying to allocate their resources to ESG themes? Uh, Fabian? So I think the first is trying to do too much. At least for my clients, the problem is not so much anymore that they don't care about this but it's that they feel themselves overwhelmed in a sea of topics 
that they could be addressing, right? And it feels a bit like I'm really going through a tick box exercise here and I have to do everything. So not defining your win the game, play the game themes thoroughly or not being successful at communicating those themes. So you have a sense, but you feel you can't really get your stakeholders to understand why they're the right things, right? That's the, I think, the first stumbling block. I think the second stumbling block is getting your organization to then measure those things and to treat them at a similar level of rigor as they do with financial performance. And, and that's really, I think, for the CFO, one of the, one of the key topics to address. And then I think the third area where sometimes clients fall short is then getting their whole organization rallied around this. So I have one client in the building materials space where they're split across Europe and the US. And the relevance of, these, of some of these topics is quite different still to their you know, local operations uh, somewhere in the Midwest of America, to their local operations in the Netherlands. And getting that company that has done a great job at creating a culture of being one company to embrace these challenges culturally and embed them in a way that doesn't make a bunch of the American guys go, yeah, but why are we talking about this? None of my customers want this. And a bunch of the Europeans go, well, if I don't have very robust descriptions of every aspect of ESG performance of my products, then no one wants to buy from me. Getting that into a, this is actually a transformation that matters to the success of all of us. And that makes sense and that I should dedicate the right amount of resources to depending where I am is quite challenging. That's really interesting. So how can companies overcome internal resistance or skepticism about ESG that might arise and the value potential that it can have for a business? Are there any internal processes that might inadvertently feed resistance to making this change? The challenge that probably is worth talking about is that sometimes you have, you have set up your own incentives in a way that makes it hard for a bunch of people in the organization to actually embrace what maybe the CEO and the CFO and the rest of the C-suite want to go after. Imagine you've built a, an extremely performance-focused organization. So you almost exclusively make investments that will pay back within three years. You outperform on your kind of commitments in the original investment plan. You're running for kind of five, seven years now, outperforming your budgets, exceeding market expectations. So like clearly you know how to do financial performance well. And you've also recognized that you've got a carbon emissions problem and you need to bring that down. And it's actually an existential problem for your sector in the long run. But for some reason, even though you keep at the leadership table saying, you know, we should be dealing with this, whenever it comes to allocating your resources, to reviewing your capital budgets, those investments into alternative fuel opportunities, but you can never approve these things unless they're already cost competitive. Now, I think what's helped when I had this conversation with a particular client that had this problem was to say, well, actually, what are the ways that I can price this in, that I can make this a very similar metric, and that I can orient my organization in exactly the same way as I've done with returns? And if you've performed, we're going to build that into your bonus, and, and, and we're, we're going to celebrate you for doing that. And if you haven't, then that's going to be a problem. And building that into the outset of resource allocation, right? So saying, when we look at the capital case of this, we actually assume a carbon price of X, or we actually implicitly tell you, here's the total budget you have for your division or your BU of carbon you can generate over the next five years, and we'll measure it every year thereafter. In the same way that we will tell you, here's your capital budget, and we will measure whether you've spent it, right? And whether the cash flows came through afterwards actually makes it in, in, in a funny way, 
a thing you can manage and a thing that all those executives that have for years done the financial performance really well understand that this is actually exactly the same thing and they know how to do it. So I think there's an enormous power in making some of your ESG metrics not some fluffy thing that a bunch of people in headquarter comms care about, but actually something that shows up on your scorecard that has an impact on your bonus and that you can manage by pulling operational levers in your plants in exactly the same way as you would manage a cost overrun, a delay, a disruption to your operations. That makes great sense. Thank you. You mentioned two interesting framing concepts or themes earlier, winning the game and playing the game. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those two themes mean in relation to ESG and what you see as the difference between the two of them? Yeah, so very simply, win the game themes are themes where we think companies or organizations can make a real difference distinctively. So they're typically things where it is both possible for the company to create a whole lot of value for its shareholders, for its own organization, and to create a lot of value for the broader stakeholders in society. There is often a bunch of themes where that doesn't quite align, right? So for instance, there's a bunch of themes where it's important that you as a company improve your performance, but it may not create a lot of value for you, right? It may not cost you a lot, but, but it may not be very value creative. And we would say those are play the game themes. And teasing those out will help companies be focused uh, in the same way that you can't really have kind of 20 strategic priorities for your broader strategy. You shouldn't have 20 ESG priorities, you know? There should probably be 15 things that someone granularly and operationally thinks about and makes sure you're not having a terrible performance on, on your waste disposal or, or what it is, right? But you want to be very focused on what are the one or two themes where you can really distinctively make a difference. And so for one of the oil and gas companies I was serving, that, that area is clearly on carbon and on investing in low carbon energy sources. It is also, though, on people and on developing talent often in far-flung places across the world where maybe the capability is not at the same level as, as in their kind of headquarter location. But it's frankly for them less about what is their waste performance. So th the issues differ a bit depending where you are and who you are and getting very clear where do we want to win and where do we need to play along is important so that you allocate a lot of your resources to where you want to win, not just equally across the board. Many people will be familiar with the materiality matrix concept, right? So it's what's the value at stake to the business and what's the value to society or value to stakeholders of, of your distinctiveness on these different issues. And it's the stuff that's both high value at stake for the business and high value to society that we call win the game themes. And not surprisingly, for many companies, especially those that are in kind of hard to abate sectors, carbon, climate is definitely going to be one of the win the game themes. But in other industries, in insurance, for example, uh, in pharma, it's probably talent. It's probably around diversity and inclusion. It's about ensuring that you get the right people uh, in the door because that, at the end of the day, is, is the source of all of your competitive advantage. Got it. Okay, my last question, and this one's for you, Matt. What are you most excited about on this topic? So what I'm most excited about, Sean, is that at the end of the day, how you allocate resources is one of the, the clearest manifestations of your strategic choices. And so if you're not getting this right, you can make a bunch of targets and, and say a bunch of things about where you're going as a business, but this is actually the mechanism that's going to create the conditions by which you actually do it. So I think for me, this is, this is very exciting because it's, it's real, it's tangible. It's not just kind of conceptual uh, big thoughts about you know, where we want to go in the future. It's about like changing the here and now and, and really pushing us as an organization in a new direction. 
Matt, Fabian, thank you so much for that great conversation. Really appreciate it. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Sean. And thank you to everybody who joined us for this conversation. You can also find transcripts of our past podcasts on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can easily explore our library of more than 120 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review our series. Thanks in advance. And finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.